Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. So, we hear the word love all the time in our culture. With phrases such as, love makes the world go round, or live, laugh, love, or a couple timeless songs like, what the world needs now is love. Or the Beatles classic, All You Need Is Love. There's this idea that we will all be okay as long as we love each other and are there for each other. Now, the idea in and of itself is not bad. It's a good thing. We should care for each other and love each other. However, it's a love that's rooted alone in the reliance upon the faithfulness of others. The problem is that such a love will always disappoint because people will disappoint. We need a love that is rooted in God. <clears throat> in God, We need steadfast love. So that's the title of the sermon is All We Need is Love. If you can go to the next slide. No, it's not. There it is. Um, with the caveat that this is steadfast love, not just the general love that we were talking about. The Psalm 103 breaks down as follows. If you go to the next slide, there is an introduction to the psalm in verses 1 through 5, and then there's instruction about God's steadfast love in verses 6 through 19, and then there's the conclusion to the psalm in verses 20 through 22. We'll look at the introduction and conclusion together first, and then we'll come back to um, spend most of the time in the middle section, the instruction about God's steadfast love. So briefly, on the introduction and conclusion to the psalm, let's go ahead and read uh, read those together. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And skipping down to verse 20. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. We see here that Psalm 103 starts and ends with repeated calls to worship. We see the phrase, bless the Lord, or bless his holy holy name seven times. It's both a personal and a corporate call to worship. As seen in the early verses, in the last verse, he's addressing Oh, my soul, it's a personal thing and all that is within me, but it's also a corporate thing. It includes all, all things in heaven and in earth. When he talks about, oh, you, his angels, his hosts, his works, and of course, including himself, oh, my soul. 
The question then is why? Why is there such an immense call to worship? Well, that's the second part. It's a call to remember the Lord's sufficient benefits. So we have the call to worship. We also have the call to remember the Lord's sufficient benefits. There's a call to remember where it says, forget not. We need the reminder of his past faithfulness, as well as his enduring promises found in scripture. Our tendency is to forget. We're often so busy and consumed by the present and the future that we forget to look how God has provided in the past, whether personally in our own lives or as recorded in the Bible. You see his benefits listed and the language surrounding them has this idea of sufficiency. That's all that we need where it says all his benefits says he forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases and using words like redeems crowns satisfies his language describing going well beyond the minimum well beyond what is needed. And we see this kind of language, this abundant, this um, overflowing nature of God's love throughout the psalm. And all these benefits could be more fully expounded, but our focus will be on the Lord's steadfast love. As it says in verse 4b, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. So our big idea is that the fullness of the Lord's steadfast love should result in the fullest praise of all his creation. And this is where we'll look at that middle section of the, of the psalm, the instruction about God's steadfast love. And there's three main points. God's steadfast love revealed in verses 6 through 8. God's steadfast love explained in verses 9 through 14 and God's steadfast love exalted in verses 15 through 19. So it's first define what steadfast love is. As the word suggests, it's a love that is steadfast. Steadfast has this idea of something that's firm, unwavering, unchanging, and steady. The Hebrew word is one word for this. It's kesed or hesed. Um, and it's used four times in this psalm, but it's also used hundreds of times in the Old Testament. One commentator said that the term is one of the most important in the vocabulary of Old Testament theology and ethics. We'll also see it defined further as we go through the text of Psalm 103, looking at the surrounding text in the context. But in short... It's the Lord's covenant love for his chosen people. The Lord's covenant love for his chosen people. When I say the Lord's covenant love, I'm talking about God's committed or faithful love for his people, despite their unfaithfulness to him. The idea of a covenant is a binding agreement or a commitment or a contract. Like an example of a present day Covenant would be marriage. Um, but ultimately, God's steadfast love goes beyond the covenant, and it will not ultimately be abandoned, even when the human partner is unfaithful and must be disciplined. So he is faithful 
to the covenant despite our unfaithfulness. So it's the Lord's covenant love or his chosen people, his chosen people being specifically the children of Israel. But by implication, it's those who trust in Christ, who's the redeemer of Israel, the Messiah of Israel. This is a love specific for his people that's distinct from his general or common love for all creation. So when I use the word covenant, what covenant am I referring to? It's the covenant that God foretold to Adam. After Adam and Eve sinned and were separated from God, God promised to save them from their sin and death and ultimately restore them to himself. This is the covenant that God initiated with Abraham when he told Abraham in Genesis 12, I will bless you, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And it's the covenant illustrated in Genesis 15, where it says, On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring, I give this land. So he promised to Abraham that through him would come the promised one who would save his people from sin and death. In making a covenant, what would happen is they would take an animal cut it in half, and the two people making the covenant would walk through the severed pieces together to symbolize what would become of the one who broke the covenant. So in other words, if you broke the covenant, you would die. In this instance, God passed through the pieces alone, signifying that he alone upholds the covenant, and that it's independent of the faithfulness of the other party being us or his people. So it's the covenant that was foretold to Abraham and that was initiated with, I'm sorry, it was foretold to Adam, initiated with Abraham, but it's also the covenant that God remained faithful to with all of Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel. We see it time and time again as it passes down through Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and the prophets. This repeated reference reference back to Abraham using words like promise and oath and faithfulness and steadfast love. And lastly, it's the covenant that God fulfilled through Christ, who is Abraham's ultimate offspring. It says in Galatians 3, 16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And skipping down to verse 29, he says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So those who trust in Christ are able to partake in this covenant and cling to the promise of restoration with the Lord. Now that we've seen it defined, let's get into the main point, number one, God's steadfast love revealed. In verses six through eight, let me read that. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So we see in verse seven that he made known his ways and his acts. 
he revealed himself, the Lord revealed himself to the people of Israel in many different ways um, in the book of Exodus, some of which we've seen as we've gone through the preaching series. First of all, he declared his name, the name of God, Yahweh, when he said to Moses, I am who I am. He revealed his might and his power in his deliverance of the people from the oppression in Egypt. He also revealed his holiness in the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments. The purpose of the law was to show us God's standard of righteousness, or what is right, according to God, and what is in line with his holy character. As it says in verse 6, he works righteousness and justice. One author named John Cross said this about the, the receiving of the law, that the Israelites took a quantum leap in their understanding of the holiness and righteousness of God. Not only does it show us God's standard, but it also shows us our unrighteousness before God and our inability to meet his standard. It's not to show our righteousness in order to, for, in order to, in order to earn favor with God. It's like the illustration of a mirror. The law shows us our sin as the mirror shows us a dirty face. You can tell me that there's dirt on my face, but that does not become clear to me until I can see my face in my reflection in the mirror. Likewise, we can't see our sin until we are able to compare it with a standard of holiness, the law. It's in understanding the law that we are able to see how sinful we actually are. So the Lord revealed his name, his might and his power, and his holiness. But the thing that I want to focus in on is that the Lord also revealed his steadfast love. Psalm 103 seems to point to one event in particular, which highlights this specific attribute. Um, the circumstances surrounding when the people of Israel made and worshipped the golden calf in Exodus 32 through 34. In summary about those events, the Lord had just given the Ten Commandments to the people, the law. The people agreed to the terms of the law and to obey the Lord's commands. After this, Moses went up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights to receive the stone tablets with the law engraved in it. While Moses was on the mountain, the people became restless and had Aaron create a golden calf to be their god. But though they had just recently received the commandments, they had already failed to uphold their side of the covenant. They, they were to have no other gods before him, and they were to not make any images of anything on the earth or beneath the earth or in the water. In response to this, the Lord said he would destroy the people. But Moses prayed to the Lord on behalf of the people by invoking the Lord's covenant with Abraham. He acknowledged their sins and he pleaded for mercy. It says in Exodus 32, this is Moses talking to the Lord. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self. 
It's not as if the Lord forgot about his promise, but more than anything, it was a reminder to Moses to cling to that promise. In response, as you would expect, the Lord remained faithful to his covenant and chose not to annihilate the people. Although he did not destroy the people, the Lord brought limited punishment upon them. He he punished the people of Israel, but he restrained the extent of his judgment. He sent a plague, but he relented from destroying them. He killed 3,000, but hundreds of thousands were allowed to live. He threatened to leave his people, but ultimately promised to remain with them. You see that broken laws do have consequences. After this, Moses went up on the mountain for another 40 days and 40 nights, where he received new stone tablets, as he had broken the original stone tablets out of anger over the people's sin. And while he was on the mountain, the Lord showed Moses a glimpse of his glory and reaffirmed his covenant with his people. He revealed this about himself, and it'll be on the screen. In Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We see that similar language with Psalm 103.8 down below it, which appears to be David, the author of Psalm 103, alluding to this particular event. So in short, the Israelites had received an object lesson in the Lord's steadfast love, his faithfulness to his covenant, despite Israel's failure to uphold their end. In what he revealed to Israel in real time, he also has graciously revealed to us through his word, the Bible. We wouldn't have known these things had God not revealed them, nor did he have to. Just as an aside, I want to challenge us to take advantage of that blessing that the Lord has given us in his word by making his word, reading his word, and studying his word a priority. Saturate, let us saturate our minds with scripture so that we don't forget his benefits and so that we can remind ourselves the truth when things get difficult. When our circumstances and feelings are telling us that all hope is lost, we can cling to the promises of God. But you can't cling to them if you don't know them. So we see God's steadfast love revealed. The second point, you can go to the next slide, Anthony, is God's steadfast love explained. We see it both explained negatively and positively. First, explained negatively or what it is not. In verses 9 through 10, he says, He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. As we saw with Israel, he does justly chide and rebuke and is angry because of sin. God doesn't lose his temper like some sort of hothead, like sinfully like we do. But this is a just reaction to sin because of his holiness. He also, though, mercifully withholds or restrains his judgment 
as we saw. He is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. So we see that his love is not always angry. In verse 9, it says he does not always chide, nor does he keep his anger forever. Israel experienced the just anger of God, but he did not remain angry. His love is also not according to our sin, as it says in verse 10. He doesn't measure out judgment according to sin in proportion to or as deserved. So you would expect this, but you don't get what you're expecting. You'd expect God to judge sin, and he does not. He shows mercy at times. He is merciful in that he does not give us what we deserve. And he is slow to anger in that he doesn't bring judgment right away, but allows time for repentance. We deserve so much worse, and we deserve it the instant that we sin. It is by the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because the just wage of sin is death. So that's it explained negatively. It is not always angry, and it's not according to our sin, but it's also explained positively what it is like in verses 11 through 14. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. You can go to the next slide, Anthony. Um, <clears throat> so we see there this kind of formula used in these. We see these three similes or comparisons grouped together kind of help explain his steadfast love. And we see this formula where it starts with as, and then it describes what it's like. And then you have so, followed by what it's being described. And then it ends with an object who it's for. <clears throat> so an example would be as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Something that we see in common with these illustrations is that they're all things that are immeasurable and limitless and infinite. He is, a truly, he is truly abounding in steadfast love. So another way to, to rephrase this is that for those who fear him, that trust him, three things are true. First, he is abundantly faithful. The amount of his steadfast love for us is like the height of the heavens above the earth. He's not always angry but he is always faithful despite our unfaithfulness. He's abundantly faithful, but he also removes sin completely. How far he removes our sin from us or forgives us is like the distance between the East and the West. He does not punish us according to our sin, as we saw, but rather he forgives fully and freely. 
there's a beautiful picture of this in Micah 7, 19. Another way of describing how God removes our sin from us. Where he says, you will, not, you will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. I was talking to Josiah um, about the tragedy of the Titan sub that um, went down to see the wreckage of the Titanic. And then we were talking about it, how they went down two and a half miles or 12,500 feet roughly below sea level to get to the wreckage. And it didn't really, I mean, it seemed like a lot, but it didn't really dawn on me until I saw the, the graphic like the one that Anthony will pull up showing the comparison of the depth of the Titanic wreckage compared to a lot of different landmarks, and especially like even looking at the Grand Canyon being twice the depth of that. It gives such a picture of the vastness of the depth of the, the ocean and the vastness of the depth to which God forgives our sin. That doesn't even really, it, it scratches the surface, but it doesn't really even begin to describe how far he removes our sin from us. So he abundantly, he is abundantly faithful. He removes sin completely, but then lastly, he shows limitless compassion. His compassion towards us is like the compassion of a loving father for his child. He does not keep us at a distance, but rather he comes alongside us in our struggles and our helplessness. Now, this is generally true for any healthy parent-child relationship. And at first, it may not seem like a good thing, as I am imperfectly compassionate towards my children. But the Lord is perfectly compassionate. His compassion is conditionless. It's not dependent upon what we can do to earn it. Think of the illustration of a father with a child. What does the child have to do to incite compassion in the parent? What benefit does the parent receive? Nothing. There's nothing that the child is doing to earn the compassion from the parent. His compassion is also considerate. As it says in verse 14, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. He takes into consideration our helpless and feeble estate. Similarly, the parent considers the state of the child, takes into consideration their inexperience, their incapability, and their inadequacy to perform certain tasks or do certain things. This made me think of my son, Zeke, who has this Batman toy that's like about the same height as him it's not as heavy as he is but it's still pretty heavy and it's interesting seeing him try to pick that up and walk with it and it can't help but incite or invoke some sort of compassion within me for him seeing him and noticing he's not able to bear that weight so to speak by himself i need to come alongside him and help him so it is the lord's compassion so so is the Lord's compassion towards us. He comes alongside of us in our helpless and feeble state. We'll come back to verses 13 and 14 in a few minutes, but right now we'll move on to the next point. So the main point, number three, is God's steadfast love exalted. Verses 15 through 19. 
As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. So we see, first of all, under this point, in verses 15 and 16, man's love is exposed. Man, or us, humans, and hence our love, is frail, it's finite, it's forgotten. It's frail in that we are compared to dust and grass and flowers in verses 14 and 15. Our love is often tainted by selfish motives, subject to our emotions, and is easily distracted by other objects. Our love's not only frail, but it's finite. It's compared to having days like that of grass and flowers in verse 16a. It starts off flourishing, but in no time it withers and is gone. So our love ebbs and flows, if it remains at all. It is not steadfast. It is not reliable. It's frail and finite, but it's also forgotten. As it says in verse 16b, its place knows it no more. Our love is not noteworthy. When it's all said and done, there's nothing about it worth remembering. So we look at the example of Israel in the story, it didn't take much for them to stray away from the Lord from the time when he had given them the commandments and they said, yes, we will obey to the time when they were building the the golden calf and worshiping it. It's such a vivid illustration of how quick we are, how weak our love is, how quick we are to stray away from the Lord. But we see, so we see man's love exposed, but we also see God's steadfast love exalted over man's in verses 17 through 19. Verse 17 starts with but, so this is showing a direct contrast with what just occurred before this. If man's love is feeble and frail and forgotten, God, and hence his love, is eternal, excellent, established, and everywhere. Like the alliteration? Um, it's eternal in that it's from everlasting to everlasting and to children's children. His love never ends. It is excellent as it's linked with righteousness in verse 17. His love is right and good and pure. It is incomparable. It's not only eternal and excellent, but it's established. So it says in verse 19a, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. His love is unchanging, reliable, steadfast, and faithful. Not only does it last forever, it also does not change. We're not left wondering if his attitude towards us has changed from day to day. One day he loves us, one day he doesn't. It's eternal, excellent, established, and everywhere. His kingdom rules over all, it says in verse 19b. 
His love extends to the farthest reaches of the earth. And there's no one beyond his love. And there's nothing that can separate us from his love. Ultimately, his steadfast love and righteousness is for those who trust in the Lord and whose outworking of faith is loving obedience to the Lord because of his grace. It's not a matter of, again, earning it. It is conditionless. It's because of his grace and mercy. He is both eternally loving and righteous or just for those who trust him. Which brings up the question, how can he be righteous and loving at the same time? How can he have a simultaneous commitment to um, to judge sin, but also to pardon sin? How can he forgive sin and still claim to work righteousness and justice? Well, this is where the gospel comes in. God sent his son in Jesus. And Jesus, Jesus lived a perfect life. He kept the covenant and the commandments perfectly. Jesus then died as a substitute for sinful man. He took on the punishment that man deserved. Jesus rose again to defeat death and sin. And Jesus forgives our sin and gives us his righteousness when we acknowledge our sin and trust him by faith, granting us access again to God. We are counted as those who have kept his covenant and obeyed his commandments through the work of Jesus. It's the truth of 2 Corinthians 5.21, where it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we can receive steadfast love because justice was ultimately satisfied, or the covenant was fulfilled in the life and death of Jesus. So we see God's steadfast love exalted over man's. We need a love like this, one that is, again, eternal and excellent, established in everywhere. The question for us is, where do we go for love, for approval and satisfaction? Where do we go when it feels like our world is falling apart? To some extent, the Lord did give us each other to come alongside each other and support each other, but we will ultimately let each other down. However, the Lord will never let us down. His love is a love that will never disappoint. So as we bring this to a conclusion, I wanted to focus back in on verses 13 and 14. <clears throat> as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. This language of he remembers that we are dust harkens back to the first three chapters of Genesis. We descend from the very one that the Lord formed from the dust from the ground. As with that first man, the only reason we have life 
is because the Lord breathed life into us. As with the first man, we too have disobeyed the clear commands of the Lord and will one day return to the ground forever to be separated from the Lord. Yet, as with the first man, the Lord has shown us steadfast love and compassion. He remembers that we are dust. He is considerate of our state. We are feeble and frail, incapable of coming to him on our own. We are helpless. We are utterly lost and dead in our sins. And as with the first man, the Lord has come to us and made provision through the one who would conquer sin and death in Jesus. An animal died in the place of Adam and Eve, showing, symbolizing what their death deserved. And having this animal die in their place. But in that, God made a promise of a greater sacrifice to come. This is what we saw in this, this idea of the covenant. It was the promise that was made to Abraham and that was ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Jesus died in our place to forgive our sins and to restore us to God to meet our ultimate need. So, if the Lord has known about our helplessness and lostness and our sin and has made such immense provision for us, does he not also know about our helplessness and our daily struggles? Whether with anxiety, depression, physical ailments, financial issues, relationship issues, school or work problems, doubts, persecution, past trauma. Romans 8.32 says that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So we can take heart knowing that the Lord knows us and he remembers us not only in meeting our ultimate need, but he meets our daily needs. He knows us by name. He formed our inward parts and knit us, knitted us together in our mother's womb. He knows about all of our days before they've happened. He knows all of our needs. And he knows the minutest detail about us even the number of hairs on your head, whether there's a little or a lot. He also, is he also says to cast all of our anxieties on him because he cares for us. So the question is, do you see yourself, do we see ourselves, do we see ourselves as dust? Do we see that we are lost in our sins and helpless to save ourselves? Do we see our need for this love, this steadfast love, this love that removes our sin and clothes us with righteousness? This love can only be found in Jesus Christ. For those who do see themselves as dust, this is our hope. 
that the Lord knows us and remembers us in our helplessness and our suffering. Let us remind ourselves continually of our need for him. And then let us rest in his steadfast love, his promise to remain with us and keep us throughout our lives and into eternity. And let us also rejoice in the Lord with all of our being. May we bless the Lord with all that is within us. For those who don't see themselves as dust, I pray that you will see yourself as such and we will see your need for him. His promised steadfast love is only for those who acknowledge their need for him and trust in him alone. So I implore you to come find this love in Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your steadfast love. A love that we know will never let us go. We thank you that you are faithful when we are unfaithful. Help remind us of our need for this love. Help us to rest in the assurance of this love. And help us to rejoice in the greatness of this love. It's in your name we pray. Amen.